Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Good. We're, We're doing, doing well. Good. Yes. How about you? Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I've been up for a few hours and I, I'm not sleepy yet. So that's good, right? Uh-huh. Well, that's Is the sun out? Yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah. Barely up here. Rainy day. How, oh. how are things going? Not supposed to talk about weather. I know. Not supposed to talk about weather. <laughs> how are you guys doing? Everybody's good. Everybody's good. You're healthy, going, everybody. Right. Very nice. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. I've got my wife's fourth of folks. Uh, they're uh, going through some uh, health issues with uh, fractured pelvis. So we were, we're on a little bit of oh, uh, respite uh, work here, which tends to happen. But we're glad mm. we're here and we can help out. And that's a good part. So we're just working through some some health issues with them. Boy, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm yeah, I'm happy you're there for them because I know yeah, that's indeed. good. Yeah, we, it is. Works out well. You, Dennis, you're doing okay? Your family? Yeah, everybody's good. Everybody's good. We're wrapping things up here and uh, quite busy with the parish and doing a wedding soon, which is fun. Uh, just had a niece's wedding. Uh, you know, That's very nice. Good. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Are yeah. able to officiate at your relatives. That's very good. Yeah. 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 As good as it gets, I think. Right. It's a lot yeah. of fun to yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It is. One of the things happening in my parish is I think we're uh, thinking about we used to have one. It was very active, and I guess it kind of died during the pandemic. That's probably the wrong type of terminology to use, but it, it went away during the pandemic. But accurate. Accurate. was our bereavement group. And uh, coincidentally, the uh, the archdiocese where I am is offering new training on that. And I think I'm going to put that together. I never really got involved in, in bereavement. Have either of you guys had that kind of specific ministry? I mean, I know we've all, we've all nope. done wakes, and we've all— Yeah, not yeah. really— but that's the great thing about the diaconate is all the opportunities to try new ministries and stretch yourself and uh, develop new skills and serve people. I mean, uh, why not? Good for right. you. I would work with a, uh, another deacon every once in a while. I'd go over and he had quite a group. I would think um, 40, 50 people would be a constant group that would come in. And over the course of years, they took on some ministerial work themselves, buying a van for the parish to... Uh, transport elderly to and from the parish and a lot of good work. It became somewhat of a social atmosphere. It always uh, does. Which became a community. Yeah, a community. Yeah. yeah, that created some problems, unfortunately, where it was felt there should be a distinction between the social aspect and the bereavement aspect. And it's kind of a confusing thing because it seems so simple to be a, a strong community and whatever brings you to that community, you know? But it's remarkable people and, again, I've heard these stories that are just very emotional that people are willing to share and as part of the grieving process. So I found it to be very, very good, strong support, and should be encouraged. So yeah, Drew, if you get the chance to do that, jump in because it's the compassion part. Right. I've done a few funerals in my time, as we all have, and I'm always concerned, and that's probably the wrong word, that uh, if I'm not careful, I'm going to get too involved in the funeral and start to, you know, get emotional and all that. And it's happened a few times when I've known, especially I normally get, if I'm invited because I knew the family very well, I get invited to do the homily. And it's always special to be able to say those special words to a family when they're grieving like that in the church. But it's always, for me, a trick to say them 
and not to start, just sit down and start crying with the family myself. <laughs> yeah. Where's the, how do you divide? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard. I see these people who, friends of mine, deacons, who've done funerals for their loved ones and boy, oh boy. Yeah. At, uh, I've done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking yeah. of you. Yeah. That's a, that's a yeah. tough one, but it's so meaningful to everybody else. It's pretty, pretty hard when you're grieving yeah, yourself. It is. Speaking of grieving and pretty hard when you're grieving yourself, uh, we have a guest today right on that topic. Tom? Deacon Kevin Martin uh, Jr. from uh, the Boston Archdiocese, who uh, wrote a remarkable book expressing his, his father's journeys through a Lou Gehrig's disease. Dennis and I had a friend who went through that for quite a while, five years or so. And so we saw how debilitating that is. And Kevin's dad was a, a short-termer. He suffered a lot before they diagnosed it. And Kevin did a lot of journaling and wrote a book. The name of that book is All Is Well, Life's Lessons from a Preacher's Father. And it's a remarkable story about a remarkable man. And if you have to have a poster child for a family, uh, this was a family where everyone got together. The father was a successful businessman in the accounting field. His son followed suit and dad ran the corporation. So he was able to be that positive influence. And everything he did, I mean, the, it was quite a remarkable funeral. It was attended by the mayor of Boston, a, a lot of dignitaries, because this man touched so many people in the community. There's a list of charities in the back of the book that our listeners might be able to find if they buy the book all as well. And then they would be readers. And then they would they be readers. The uh, and can see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like this book and I like Kevin just because it tells a story of a, a positive family working the faith day in and day out, not only in church on Sunday, but when they went into the working field, how they treated their employees, how they respected one another, how they as family shared game time, vacation time. It's like a throwback to the 50s, what we grew up. I mean, the Ozzy and Harriet life, people had faith. They worked together. They worked in the community. They went to work. Uh, and it's a very positive book centered around the topic that we were talking about, compassion and loss of a loved one and how we deal with that. You know, what I liked about it is that it's a, it's a good model for everybody that shows you that no matter where you are, I mean, this man was a, a running an accounting firm. You know, he found time for the poor. He found time to reach out to people in the neighborhood. He just, it was just his life. It was a live faith, which is very instructive for all of us that you can start doing this right now. You know what I mean? You don't have to go to some far off place, or you don't have to be, you know, raising large sums of money. So the mayor comes to your funeral. I mean, that's nice if it happens, but you just, you just got to start looking around at the people around you and be there for them, which is what his dad did, which was very, I thought, very instructive for all And of the us. family, the family followed suit. But again, it cast within this uh, topic of our sorrow when we lose people. And that's what motivated Kevin to write this book about a life well lived. And Interesting, the cover of the book, his father would write to him, as you lose your facilities, a lot of your muscle tone, as you know, with ALS. So he had a journal, little yellow pad, legal pad, right? And uh, his dad would take the marker and make it down. So it was interesting to find out that the title of the book, All Is Well, is actually his dad's last message that he wrote on a pad. And he scrawled it out all is well on his dying moments. That was his attitude, leaving this first part of our life going into eternal life. And that was his comment all as well. And that's the goal. Yes, it? It if is. you can, if, you, if you're about ready to go and what you're thinking at that moment is all is well, 
You're doing all right. Yeah, I think. Uh, I pray for yeah, that, Grace. It, it, and that's what it is. So well, why don't we uh, listen to Kevin's story and uh, his words telling his dad's story that all is well. Great idea. Okay, great. Idea. great. Thank you. So our guest today is Deacon Kevin P. Martin, Jr. Kevin is a deacon in the Archdiocese of Boston and serves on the board of Catholic Community Fund. In addition, Kevin continues to work as a certified public accountant and is the managing office partner of Cone Resnick, Massachusetts office, serving the firm's not-for-profit, affordable housing, and commercial real estate clients. Kevin is the author of All Is Well, a book he wrote in tribute to his late father, Kevin P. Martin Sr., who passed away in 2019 from ALS, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, as we know, is sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease. Kevin tells the difficult story of those last days of seeing his loved ones suffer while sharing his remarkable story of a family whose strong faith and loving bonds helped them through this painful struggle. Welcome, Kevin. Kevin, indeed. I appreciate all the work that you all do with evangelization and spreading the good news. Let's start with this, the book. Uh, excellent book. It was laced with a good Catholic teaching, a good family life. I couldn't help but read that book and just see the loving family environment, a good, wholesome family life that is really, I think, envious in today's day and age. So why don't you start with that and your dad and how you came about the format that you used. I had never planned to write a book. It was never any place I, where I saw it coming from. And my dad got diagnosed, he passed away, and it was in September of 19, which was four or five months before the pandemic set. Right. I was just dealing with this very strong grief and I was keeping a journal. And I wanted to keep a journal to keep his memory alive and to remember all the stories. Not that I'd ever forget, but somehow I had it in my hand that I was going to forget his voice. I was going to forget his smell. I was going to forget him. Just was writing things down. And over the course of the pandemic, I had cut back my charity work. I had cut back on the gym, all those events that we all go to in our local hometown, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce or industry events, they were all cut back. So I, I spent a lot of time on this. And before you know it, memories turned into themes and themes turned into chapters and chapters turned into a book. And obviously, if I could turn back time, I wouldn't have had my dad get diagnosed with ALS. He wouldn't have died. Uh, and I wouldn't have written a book. Uh, <laughs> but here we are. My hope is, and I think it is happening, that the book can be a source of inspiration for others, a place to turn to in grief, a story of faith, a story of father-son relationships, maybe even a story of kind of how to get a little bit of an extra bite of the apple out of life. So I am hoping something that there was Profound suffering on many levels turns into something that can benefit others. Yeah, the, uh, that's a difficult disease. We had a friend, Dennis and I, who had, the family had 12 children. And the dad came down with ALS when he was about 71 and passed away at 76. Yeah. So he went the full distance of the five years of a steady and difficult decline. And it's one that does challenge our faith because it's 100% fatal. Right, that we in our faith we always talk about hope, and this is one of those diseases that there is no hope, and we're gonna find the hope and the joy someplace else in the journal, 
in the journey because it's not going to end in uh, it's not going to end in Lazarus being raised. Uh, right. So we've got to find hope in a different way. And it, so my father, in many ways, I had proclaimed the Beatitudes at his for the gospel for his funeral, and I really felt that, that he lived his life in the Beatitudes, and especially that he was given mercy for someone who was so merciful to so many others. And uh, I, I do feel that it wasn't the miracle that we were looking for. Oftentimes it's not, but it's the miracle that was absolutely there at the end. And your, your dad was a playmaker. He was a high-profile man, but from the funeral and the obituary, he touched a lot of people's lives in many significant ways, and that had to be a source of hope for you and your family, I would suspect. Oh, for sure. Just to be very transparent, I idolized my father. My father and I worked together for 30-plus years, family business, and we never, sometimes you watch the TV shows, the movies, and the families screaming back and forth at each other. We never, ever had one of those conversations. And that's not to say that we didn't disagree. Disagreed a lot. But it was always very respectful. It was always very calm. It was always a little give and take. And in the accounting language, a little bit of debits and a few credits. <laughs> um, but but it, was just, uh, it was just a very healthy relationship. And I just... I always remember being on car rides with my dad and he just, he lived his faith. He was that humble servant. He clothed the naked, he fed the hungry. He always just did the right thing. And I just, I miss him so much. My idol by every definition. One of the things I noticed, I noticed I several things in your book that, that I hope we get a chance to talk about. But one of them is the irony to me, or I hope that's the right word. You are the deacon. You are the ordained deacon. But your father lived his life like a deacon. He circulated that office and stopped and talked to people who needed to be talked to or maybe who needed somebody to talk to them or whatever. And those moments, those descriptions, I thought were just delightful in your book about how your father made the rounds and then wound up in your office sitting in, in your chair. Yeah, the funny thing is the title has that certain irony to it because it's not life lessons from the deacon. It's life lessons from the deacon's father. The interesting part of the title all as well is that when my dad was in those last five days of the hospital, he was intubated, couldn't talk, and he was writing on a legal pad journal that the hospital gave him. And he was asking, in some cases, can I see the nurse or what's happening or anybody know the score of the Red Sox game? But the very last entry after five days, after 32 pages of notes, was all as well. So that all as well that you see on the title, that's actually his handwriting. Not the below piece, but the all as well piece. Is right. Hand- wow, that's it. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, Tom, that, that, was a, that answers your question, Tom. Tom had yeah. a question about all as well. I, I'll shut up though. Yeah, and it's yeah. just, and it, for me, for all the anxiety of ALS, it was a peaceful ending that he wasn't shaking. There was no death rattle. There was no... I'm in pain, what's happening to me? I mean, all is well. And I come back and I didn't realize at the time, shame on me, but it's the story of that Shumanite woman who with the sun passes away and despite the sadness of the event, says it is well, all is well. And I sat back and said, wow, it's just a place of contentment. So the, the, the phrase has meaning to me. Now I'm going to be 60 in two weeks and I'll be honest with you, 
Never thought I would have gotten a tattoo in my entire life, but I got a tattoo at 59. <laughs> all right. Years. Okay. All is well. That's it. Let's see it. All the is well. There you hand, go. Is that, is, is that is your dad's handwriting? That's my dad's handwriting. That's Look they, at that. the, the tattoo yeah. I told her. Did a graphic of it. <laughs> and, and, tell, and tell the listeners where that story is in the Bible, the one you're referencing. It's in Ezekiel, and it's referenced in a couple of different other places. But it's the story of Elijah, and uh, it's just it's only a paragraph. So it's just a nice little story that just talks about faith. And, and when times are troubled, you know, what we should be doing, that all is well. So any time in our life, we can't come back and say, is all is well. So that was another stunning part of your book. And it was right there at the end, at the end when your father knew before any of you did and accepted it. Didn't just know yeah. it, just said, okay, this is it. Yeah. One of the chapters in the book that was the most difficult for me to write was that chapter on suffering. And here's a guy who was very practical, very resilient, but very practical and really aligned himself with Jesus. I think that we all struggled with suffering so much we try to get our hands around it and when i engage with people as i'm sure you do as deacons that death and sickness are the biggest threats to our faith and when when, when a family member's gonna die it's easy to believe when life is going pretty good right when we're healthy when we get the job when we get the roof over our head and we're on vacation getting the ice cream but boy oh boy we challenge when death is around us and a bad illness is around us. And uh, I think my father realized that suffering was part of living and we all suffer. And for a guy that for the most part had no, not a lot of profound suffering in his life, realizing that suffering was part of it. How does he get to heaven faster? Here's the suffering I realized and I'm okay with it because that's part of the journey. So mm-hmm. I think he just accepted it. How old was he when he died? He was just shy of 79. Ah. Mm. That difficult road of embracing suffering, it seems. He got a little bit of attached to it, it seems, from your writing. that He took it willingly. He took it willingly. And he, he had a tough childhood. Parents died young. His, he had three brothers, and the brothers all got split up into different aunts' households until one aunt said, hey, not for me to split these, three bo- these four boys up. I'll take them all in. But there was a period of time after parents had died that they were in boarding school. My, I think I, and I talk about the book, my dad never learned how to ride a bike. Something so yeah. simple because of being in and out of boarding school, just never learned how to do some simple thing. So I think he was just a resilient person. And I think we've all heard that expression that we can fall on either side of the tracks. And uh, my dad just fortunately, blessedly leaned on the right side. Yeah, that was the motivation for him. Do you think was that something in his experience that motivated him to succeed and to build that family life? I think just when I can remember talking about this in the book as well that he, I think, had a difficult childhood. Again, being bounced around family, Um, the mother had rheumatic fever, had heart issues, etc. And I think that when he ended up at his aunt's house and got to watch baseball on TV. Talked about Jackie Gleason's show and the family all sitting around. He ended up with an aunt who had a couple of boys of her own, all the same age. I think he just felt he very, very blessed. Met my mom hanging on the corner, as they say, as Dean Matt would say, back when they were 13 or 14 years old. And I think he just 
felt he had a, a good life and I think worked very hard to be involved with his parish, be involved with the Archdiocese of Boston, be involved with a lot of the nonprofits. Um, so I grew up, we grew up in Southeast, so Southeast, for those of you who aren't familiar, kind of home of goodwill hunting, if you will. So it's Southie. a, it's a Southie, right? That's so right. I know Southie. The working class neighborhood. And I think that my father always felt privileged and just, he lived and breathed Southie as my hometown, right? Born down on A Street, raised up on B Street. Southie yeah. is my hometown. Exactly. There's something about it. All right. You got it. You got I know. I'm from the, I'm from the area. Yeah, well, your dad sounds with people who suffer tragedy like he did at a very young age. It it does form you. He may have had a good life after that, but that kind of stress and suffering that he went through, insecurity, all that stuff that he was subjected to at that stage of his life is probably what prepared him to accept suffering and also I suspect it, you know, what made him so empathetic that he made it a point of his life. It wasn't an afterthought that he was going to live the gospel. He was going to feed the hungry. He was going to shelter people. He was going to talk to this person. That doesn't fall from the sky. People are empathetic for a reason. It sounds like you just gave us the key to why your dad was probably like he was, that he was so empathetic. Yeah. Empathetic empathy. And I talk about it in the book, forgiveness. I think was also one of his strong suits that he was, I think I mentioned specifically quote by quote, he was a master of forgiveness because you never knew you needed it. Right. You never allowed the situation to get to that point right. that caused something to occur. But I think he was all about just realizing that time is precious and not wanting to have those, that life with regrets. So many of us regret certain things in our life, family dynamics. And I think that he was just all about not wanting the drama and just liked a calm, peaceful, and I'm an only child and we got a great relationship. Many lessons learned at Fenway Park and I've got four kids. And he was the grandfather that wasn't like checking in to say, how's school going? The more generic 40,000 foot question. He was the one that said, how'd that Latin test go yesterday? Because I knew you were struggling with it. But he was engaged daily, my kids, all the time. Mm -hmm. What a gift. One of the things that struck me about the story is I too have a friend right now who's suffering with ALS and she's been at it a little bit longer. I, mm -hmm. It struck me that your father's journey with ALS was relatively short based on other stories I've heard. It was a very short journey. And what's interesting about ALS is it's basically a disease by elimination of so many other things. So we chased this for probably about a year when right. he was having some muscle weakness. And at 78, the doctor said, ah, you're 78, what do you want? And then he was a golfer and a pretty good golfer and went back to the doctor and said, well, you got a pinched nerve or a herniated disc, let's do some PT. Mm -hmm. And then four months later, he was getting some weakness. And they said, well, you got arthritis, what do you want, Jeff? So I think it was one of these things, it wasn't until he had um, an electrical conduction study and had what I, the technical term is fasciculations that's mentioned in the book, but it's that, <laughs> is that it's that, that tick that you see on the body that become almost rampant. And it wasn't until I think it was kind of, I knew we had ALS two months before he was formally diagnosed. It was, I was overread at that point. Right. Um, point of just uh, ad, ad nauseum anxiety at that point. So I think 
that when he was diagnosed formally at Mass General, at that point, I was expecting, but still, you don't realize until you hear the words. Mm-hmm. Even in the hospital, those last five days, when my dad was intubated, he had about two hours. His oxygen levels had been okay. But they had taken him off, and they right. kind of explained back and forth. And I think to your point about, I think Tom's point about accepting it, no, so your point, Drew, about accepting the suffering, I remember just so profoundly his words were, we had a really good run. We mm-hmm. had a really good run. And he meant that, I think, on every level. Mm-hmm. I think he had a happy family, he had marriage, everybody in the family was healthy, that everybody was where they were supposed to be on their educational journey or whatever. Um, but I think he just looked back and felt that it was just a good, a good ride. Gratitude. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly that's the key for brother David Stendelratz has a website. What's it called? Is it gratefulness dot org or gratitude or some dot org? But his whole he's built the whole spirituality around the basic thing of you got to learn to be grateful. Right. When one time I met him one time and he taught me how to pray an orange. He picked up an orange, regular orange. And he peeled it, tasted it, smelled it, all this stuff. And he was just showed me like, here's how you eat a piece of fruit. And it was like nothing but gratitude for every little bit and then paying attention to it. And he said, you need to do this with your whole life. It's, it's, so it sounds like your dad made me think of that, that. And that is just a key spiritual driver if you're grateful. And to your point, that reminds me, there's a chapter in the book on savoring. And my daughter, ironically, out of the blue, sent me a note a couple of days ago. It's her favorite chapter. And I, I truly believe we can slow down the clock of our lives. We save the moment. I, I did a book signing at my parish in Milton, St. Agatha's Parish in Milton about a month ago. And we had a very nice turnout. And people were asking some questions and whatnot. And I was talking about savoring. And I said, picture this moment. You're rushing to the client meeting, the customer meeting. You see the high school friend from afar on the corner of your eye. Don't have time to talk. You rush into the coffee shop, you get the coffee, you get the bagel, you jump back in the car, it takes you 10 minutes. But imagine had you taken 15 minutes rather than the 10, and you stopped and talked to the pal from high school, realized that his wife had just passed away. You offer a hug, you offer to reconnect, you go into the coffee shop, you smell the aroma of the coffee grounds in the back. And you take the time to smell the dough of the bagels coming out of the, uh, the bagels coming out of the oven and the cream cheese just melting on the bagel. Mm. But it only takes three or four minutes because you've already gone through the exercise of parking the car. But that difference of five minutes, that savory moment is just priceless. And I, I still have to remind myself of that sometimes. But when I'm in Boston for a client meeting, I always try to spread enough time between the meetings that they're not back to back that I love walking through the public garden and appreciating that elderly couple having the tuna fish sandwich or somebody walking the dog. And it's just a, it's a special moment when you can take the time to notice those things. Yeah, connected with the present. Yeah, that's a, it's whole, a special that's a spirituality. Yeah, It's a special moment when you're going to hear a guy from Boston say, park the car, the car. <laughs> making him do it. You, no, I, know, I said to myself, I wonder how long it was going to take. <laughs> no. Maybe Tom this and is I the, are from the neighborhood. It's maybe not, this is uh, the time to point out that I'm in the minority here. I'm a Yankees fan from a New York area, and uh, I'm, but I'm okay. You guys just keep going. Evil <laughs> empire, evil <laughs> empire. 
Well, we share the Red Sox and the Yankees now share the bottom of the AL East, so no one's happy right now. Yeah, really. Right. That's, right. That's right. That's right. All Kevin and I can say is go Pats. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Another team I hate. Oh, indeed. We I embrace just a hater. hater. Come on. They hate us because they ain't us. That's what we say in Boston. <laughs> it's um, like being the Yankees. Yeah, with all those rigs, they can't fit them on their fingers. That's though. right. <laughs> See? Yeah. No fun being on the other shot. side, huh, Drew? <laughs> I don't care. I believe you were a prison chaplain at one time, Kevin. Is that? No, I was not, but I've done a lot of work in a lot of work in immigration. So I work with Cardinal Sean a lot on okay. immigration and refugee issues. I was on the board of a nonprofit in Boston that mostly works in immigration. It backed off when my father got diagnosed, but spent a lot of time in that area. Yeah, that's that's tough. Just what's going on from the immigrants who are being sent from different parts of the country. It's just, we're in a crazy world. Yeah, that empathy of your father is not shared by many people on the borders these days. No, I know it. I know it. Well, let me be that guy who disagrees with you, Tom. I think a lot of people on the border shares that empathy with his father. The governor on the border doesn't oh, share that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, he's a good guy. You're right. I misspoke. <laughs> First of all, before we leave the book, and I'm not saying we should ever leave the book, First of all, let me say it was a wonderful book and I recommend it to our listeners because there's so much in there about how to face suffering, how to face death, how to live a life, how to love family life. Rather than repeating everything though, which I should not do because I probably would never do it justice in the book. Let me just ask you, Deacon Kevin, whether or not you could share with our listeners your thoughts on how they can approach the impending death of a loved one. It's hard to get our head around. And uh, the way you ask the question is how many times have we all been to the funeral and we've got that reading time and a place for everything, right? It's, it's right. easy when we're not that person. Exactly. And, and I think my advice would be to accept our humanity for what it is, that God meets us where we are, that I, I and I talk about this in the book, that I was one of those guys because I'm a deacon, I was out selling the gospel, selling our profession of faith. And when I found myself in the situation of that place, had a faith crisis. And as I look back, do I fail? In the moment, do I, I felt like I failed myself and I had failed the church. And then I think over time, I've accepted that it's okay. It's right. okay. We all struggle with our faith at times. So I think that to answer your specific question, I think my answer would be to be in the present moment with your family, to try to resolve things that had been unresolved. Those things were out there. I think to be patient with one another, to accept each other who they are. But I think mostly to accept that there's no rule. And to kind of acknowledge we're all human, you're going to feel what you feel. And one day it may be you're, you feel the joy, you feel the hope, you know that your loved one's going on to eternal life. And there are going to be other days that you say, I don't know if I believe that, or I'm angry at God, or how could God have let this happen to my mother, father, spouse, son, daughter, loved one. So I think that this grief has no rules. I think just letting it be what it is, uh, I think, and be accepting of all those emotions, find ourselves not beating ourselves up. 
and realizing that God is with us more than realize sometimes in that rough. When we're expecting the miracle, the miracle often happens in a different way. And often it's not the miracle that we're demanding God to provide us, but it's a different type of miracle. So I think just being in the moment and and sometimes in the mustard seed, they will do the job. Oh, thank you for that answer. If you're listening to this podcast, then rewind that, take notes and write it down because that will take you through it. That was a wonderful yeah. answer. Thank good. you so much. When serious illness like your dad had and death, when that comes to your house, not the next guy's house, when that comes to your house, if that doesn't make you struggle with your faith, I got to think you're not paying attention. I mean, I don't know what you're talking how, how yeah. you How you cannot struggle once it becomes real, I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, have that somebody else. Oh, isn't that the shame? What's for dinner? You know what I mean? But when it's someone I love, when part of my world, if you have a living faith, it shakes every other. It shakes you emotionally. It shakes you intellectually. It shakes yeah. you every way. Why wouldn't it shake your faith? I just think it's so, yeah. so true. Yeah. But, but a lot of times, I think, doesn't it, it takes uh, in the broken world we live in with families, it generates a lot of regret, I think you have a choice and you go down the regret path because you've been hurt by others and I should have done this. And you come up with a lot of things that I think challenge our faith when there's really so little that can be done at that point in time. I think the the best part is to live in that present moment, to not have the the feuds, family feuds and stuff get in the way that bring you down the dark path. Right. I can remember when I was studying for the diaconate, I consciously, I don't think I was charged with this, but I consciously was going through my, the list of people that I would regret not having fixed something had I been on my own deathbed. And there wasn't a lot. It wasn't like dozens of people, but I probably had three or four situations, maybe a work relationship that there was too much said or this or that. And I remember fixing every single one of those before I was ordained. We all had the hug fest on it. And so I feel really comfortable that I sleep pretty good at night and just don't have any of those dynamics that I work really hard on, on those things that I, I don't want to be. So I'm a, I, my, my mother and I talk about this sometimes. What's going to happen when we die? Who's, is, it, is it Peter and Paul at the pearly gates? And I'm, no, I don't think that's where it's going to play out. I think it's going to be 70s paneling orange company and all the people we didn't fix it with are going to be in this green room saying, okay, Kev, let's have a conversation before you go into the next. I got a bone to pick with you. (laughs) Remember that time? (laughs) The room is kind of empty. (laughs) (laughs) The antechamber. Yeah. (laughs) So Kevin, before we ask you our, our singular question that we like to ask all our guests, let me ask you the book all is well, and where can listeners get that? So if you Google all as well, Kevin Martin, you can get it on Amazon. And I've been blessed that many of the Barnes and Nobles and independent booksellers got it right in the stores. Mm-hmm. And Pauline has it. Pauline Media has it. So you, you can certainly find it online or in the local bookstore. Right. And so if you have a family, this is a book for you. If you have a spirituality or you'd like to get one or think about very real, practical how do you negotiate life like the thing 
that Deacon Kevin just went through with us about making amends and preventing the regrets at the funeral and all stuff. If you want to see about what a functioning family looks like, what you know, it's just a joyful. So much of the book is just joyful and uplifting spiritually, and it's not a theology book, and right. it's not going to hurt your head. This is something you can really enjoy being lifted up by. So I highly recommend, I want to stress that, because a lot of times people we have here have heady books that people may not, I don't know if I want to be challenged like that, but this is a wonderful, sweet, easy, but very deep book. And so all is well, it's available on Amazon and uh, feed your spirit with that. It's a very spiritual book. It's a very and, sp- po- and, and it's positive in, yeah. in today's day. It's very very incarnational spirituality. Yeah. Yes. Like the rubber hits the road on every page. This is real people living the gospel in the ordinary way. This is not lunatics on street corners yelling at people or dumping Bibles. This is what mature Catholic spirituality looks like when it's lived out. So I appreciate your comment about the tone and I tried to write it in a way that you and I were sitting uh, in Southie in the local bar having a beer or, the, or Dunkin' Donuts, whatever it might be. We were having a conversation about our families or about faith that this was intended to be conversational, right? So it wasn't intended to be heavy. It was intended to be, let's have a conversation about right. some of the- And it's not preachy either. Yeah. It's very well done. I highly recommend it. You'll all enjoy it. All is well. And the Shubanite woman, by the way, is hiding in Kings, not in, in Ezekiel. I just told <laughs> That's okay. What? Correction. We're, ca- we're Catholics. We don't know how to look stuff up in the Bible. Yeah, they're being a Protestant now. You know, come on. We would have had a Protestant if we wanted that. But uh, no, that's good to know. It's in Kings, the, the Shubanite woman. So, Kevin, we do this podcast, and the idea are, of our audience is people on the threshold of the church, either deciding to come in or maybe deciding to leave. And we always ask our guests, if you were presented with that, and I'm sure you have been as a deacon, with someone who's wondering what to do, whether it's they should come in or whether they should go out, how would you approach that? I would say that God has planted in our hearts a desire. And everybody's been planted with that desire. And I think one of the hardest things in life is to do is to listen we're so busy, there's so much traffic, there's so much music, there's so many choices on TV, there's so many traffic stops, there's so much stuff happening in our families, the dogs are barking, and the hardest thing to do is to listen. And I am convinced that if we're truly able to stop and listen and open our hearts and at least acknowledge the notion that God has planted this desire that that'll bring us to the right place. And it may, like I say, it may not be today or the next day because we may have to work through things. We have, we may have to work through our anger with God over something that happened in our life or the lives of a, a family member or a friend. But we will get there in due time. God's okay with that. That, that all of these trips are off the exit ramps and back on. We come in and we come out. And God's okay with that, but we don't have to be the family that's up every morning at 5.30 saying the rosary. We don't have to be the person who, the one spouse is the Eucharistic minister and the other one's the reader, but the son's the collector. And we don't have to be that family. Okay, to just trip forward a little bit because we're all trying to just doing the best we can. But I think for, for me, 
it's accepting that that desire for him is there and I'm going to figure it out because I'm working hard to listen. Just fall forward. That's the fall advice. forward. Yeah. We're, fall we're forward, Tom. That. That's our <laughs> Episcopal motto on our shields, right? Yeah, they're shooting at you. Yeah, thank you. Speaking sure. Kevin Martin, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you, God Kevin. Bless you and your family. Thank you. Thank you so much, and bless all of you. And again, thank you for all you're doing for the faith. All thanks. Right. Thanks for making us look good. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Thank you. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.